0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please have a seat. And if you have your Bible with you, we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark today. It's the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. We'll actually be there for the next number of weeks. We, in the church, we want to wrap everything that we do around the person and work and life and truth of Jesus. And one of the ways that we do that together, communally, is, is that even our rhythm of time is wrapped around Jesus. Jesus and the events of Jesus's life. And so we go by what we call the church calendar. That's where we had Advent back the beginning of December. We then had Christmas. We are now in the season of Epiphany. And this is one of the earliest Christian feasts. They're called feasts because they're celebration days. Uh, and so one of the earliest Christian feasts, by the early fourth century, Christmas was locked in on the date of December 25th, and Epiphany on January 6th is the day that we celebrate, the day of Epiphany. That was early fourth century, but those feasts were, uh, were around a long time before they were locked into the Roman calendar in that way as well. So this feast, that we're celebrating today here in Epiphany is close to 2,000 years old. So what is epiphany? Well, the word means manifestation or realization. One of the, one of the ways that we teach our kids about what epiphany is, uh, is we say that Epiphany, the season of epiphany is the season of, aha, like, oh, right, that Jesus, we just sang about him being born. Oh, this is who he is. This is why he is here. There is a a manifestation of God, a realization of who Jesus is. And this is a this is a really important moment and thing for us to kind of sit and uh, and marinate in a little bit, because in our culture there is there is oftentimes pushback about what would be. Called organized religion, right? As opposed to sort of a general spirituality um, that says uh, that says, "Yeah, we can know God is out there, but I'm not really sure uh, who He is or what He does." And there's a lot of a there's a there's a, a a lot of discrepancy or difference in the underneath the claim that says, "Isn't it arrogant or close-minded to think that?" Anyone could claim knowledge of God, isn't it? Isn't it if God is if God exists and He's real, then He's beyond our comprehension. He's bigger than we are. We could never understand Him, uh, and so 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 to claim we know something about Him or or make specific truth claims, especially exclusive truth claims, that would say, this, God is this, and he is not that, in our culture is oftentimes frowned upon to be able to say, gosh, that just seems so arrogant and ignorant and closed minded And here's the thing, I agree. Unless, unless the unknowable God, who is absolutely beyond our comprehension and understanding, unless he makes himself known to us, then everything is different. Right? If, if the God who created our intellect and our senses and our ability to experience anything wants us to know him, then he can reveal himself in ways that we can truly know him and know things about him and have certainty and confidence in the truth of those things if he chooses to reveal himself to us. If there is an epiphany. And this is one of the central claims of Christianity is that the unknowable God can be known because he has made himself known to us in various ways. He has, he has revealed himself in his word. This is how we know about who God is and what he is like that we don't have to just speculate. Because you see those claims of if we're going to use our own intellect or, or our own knowledge or our own power to grasp God, we can all agree God's bigger than that. But if God writes down who he is, wants us to know who he is, reveals himself to us and says, here, this is who I am, then we can see who he is in the word of God. And we know by this word of God itself that the word was written by the Holy Spirit working through people. We also have another way of knowing who God is and how he has revealed himself to us, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know the Father, look to the Son. He he is the image of the invisible God, is what the New Testament says about who Jesus is. And so we can learn about who God is by understanding who Jesus is. And so we are entering into a new series today um, as we begin Epiphany that we're calling... The revealing, who is Jesus and why did he come? Who is Jesus? Why? Why did he come? We're going to examine what exactly is revealed about God by the realization of the person and work of Jesus. You're going to hear from four different preachers over the course of the next six weeks as we spend most of Epiphany in Mark chapter 1. In just this one chapter, we're going to spend time in there. There's a chapter from John that's thrown in there by the lectionary as well that we'll look at a little bit later on. But we're going to spend a lot of time in Mark chapter 1. And my hope is that you'll be intrigued by Jesus. That's my, that's my hope. Not just as a concept, not just as a system of beliefs, but, but intrigued by, by the person of Jesus as both God and man. I, I pray that there's an, an epiphany in your own hearts about the closeness and the reality of who God is and what that means for you as well. So here we go. We begin. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you're going to tell the story of Jesus, there's a lot to tell, right? Even if you haven't been in, in church, you've probably heard some stories about him before. There's blind people being healed. There's lame people all of a sudden being able to walk. There's, there's that whole crucifixion and resurrection thing, right? There's, there's big events in the life of Jesus. Well, where do you begin? How, how do you begin this This story. And the gospel writers take different approaches to this. Mark begins in a very particular place with the baptism of Jesus. And to understand why the baptism of Jesus is important, we have to to realize the context of what is happening here. Because leading up to the gospel of Mark and this moment when Mark is telling this story about Jesus... In the Old Testament, we have thousands of years of history in which God speaks to his people through prophets. Familiar names like Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They hear from God and then they come to the people and say, here's what God has said. The people depended upon the prophets to hear from God. Now, all of them spoke in different historical contexts and and their messages were, were therefore sort of contextualized for where they are. But here's the summary of what all of the prophets said, okay, is this. Here's, here's God's word. Here's, here is how he has revealed himself in, uh, in his law, in his covenant that he has made with us. Here it is. Now, this is, this is the holy God and the covenant he's made with us. Now, here's you, uh, and, uh, and here's how your actions, our actions together as a people, are not living up to that covenant. And, not, uh, and, and that we are rebelling against God, that our actions are causing damage to ourselves and to others. Our sin is breaking the world. Uh, and so now recognize that in how God has revealed himself to us, that he is compassionate and merciful and forgiving. And so he's calling you back. Our response should be to repent to repent and believe, to turn back to God, this loving, merciful God who is quick to forgive and full of compassion and mercy, uh, and that he wants to receive us back home. And he's, he's coming, he's doing something. He will, he will judge the world, and so he is giving us ample time to come and return to him. Now, this is, this is basically what all the prophets said, and it didn't go well for many of them. Being a prophet's hard um, because ever since the beginning of sin itself in Genesis chapter 3, at the heart of all of our sin is that we want to be God. We want our will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, in the way that we want it, in the time that we want it, with the results that we want, in the exact way that we will it to be, in that we uh, and that we chase after our own desires and our own blessing and our own glory. And so, when someone comes saying, "Here's the holy God. You are not God. And here's actually how your actions contribute to the sins of the world and rebellion against God. You need to repent." The the reaction is oftentimes violent. Trust me, I've been a preacher for a long time. Right? The prophets were oftentimes stoned and beaten and drug out of the city because we don't want to hear this kind of message. So here's, here is we have this history of the prophets. And the last prophet is in the book of Malachi. And so if you, if you look in your Bible sometime, you'll see that the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And after Malachi the prophet, between the Old Testament and the New Testament... There are four hundred years of silence. There's no new prophets. No new word from God. You can read about this, what we call the intertestamental period in in something called the Apocrypha, which is not scripture, but it is good to read and to learn from uh, as well. And there's good history in there as well. So it's in the Apocrypha. We don't have time to go into that today, but there's no word from God. And there's this longing of the Israelite people who are supposed to be his people to hear from him. And a longing for the Messiah, the Anointed One, in Hebrew, Messiah, in Greek, Christos, the Anointed One. There's a longing for the Christ to come who is foretold in the Old Testament by the prophets, there will be another prophet who will come who will be like Moses, the one, the one who can appear before the face of God himself and straighten out what is crooked. And so the last verse of Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 says this, Behold, I will send you so there's this fourth telling, the foretelling of things that's going to happen. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So he's saying there is going to be a uh, someone who comes in in the way that Elijah came. Elijah was one of the most powerful Old Testament prophets, came at one of the lowest moments of Israel's history when they were very far away from God, and boldly combated the, uh, those who were against the work of Israel and God during that time as, as well. And so, someone in that same spirit and power of Elijah is going to come as a forebearer, as the one who's going to tell of the Lord coming. So here's how Mark starts his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what the whole book is about, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he starts the story of Jesus with a a quote from the prophet Isaiah. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So here in he, Mark. This is the story of Jesus. Now, how are we going to tell the story of Jesus? We're going to put it in the context of this this history of the prophets that in leading up to the idea that Jesus is the fulfillment of what these prophets are talking about. But before the Lord comes, there is the one who is going to prepare the way for him. So so Mark says, let's think of all the prophets. Let's think of all this prophecy as well. And then he just drops it on us. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So clearly he's likening John the Baptist here. Uh, and that John the Baptist is not like a denomination. It's not like John the Presbyterian, right? Or John the Methodist, John the Anglican. He's, uh, he's he is John the baptizer uh, because that's what he's coming to do. He's coming to baptize. Here's a quote from the prophets and then about the the one who's going to come before the Lord comes, and then here's John. And John is, is baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to hear this. John's appearance is the most significant event that has happened to Israel in 400 years at this point. He's speaking with the authority of a prophet, and he's calling in the same genre of prophecy of repentance and readiness for the Lord coming. In fact, Luke chapter 1 tells us that before John was born, the angel Gabriel came to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, to foretell of the birth of John. And he tells him this, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Luke records Gabriel telling John the Baptist's father, your son is going to do this. And when he says this, his ministry, he combines multiple verses from the Old Testament of uh, of Malachi, and he's going to turn the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. And Isaiah, there's going to be one who is foretelling the way of the Lord. This is a big deal. He's saying prepare spiritually, heart, body, mind, soul. God is coming. The coming of Jesus is is no small event. And God wants to make sure that we see it in the context of the greater story. And so here's the response of the people. Verse 5, all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So people came from all over to hear his message and to be baptized by him. Now, some commentators, some scholars believe that the number of people that could have come out to visit John in the wilderness and be baptized was somewhere around 300,000 people. There was a hunger to hear from the Lord. A a, a revival is starting to take place in the people of Israel that, that there is a foretelling of the Lord coming and something is stirring in their hearts. And I would say this, don't we long for the same thing today. The world is hurting and it's in conflict and we need God to speak, to straighten things out, to come with power, to clarify, to save, to redeem, to straighten. We need a revival in the church. We need a revival in our hearts. We need a revival in the world. And here's what we see right from the beginning of the story of Jesus is that revival begins with Repentance. Revival begins with repentance. That that longing that we have to receive the Spirit and the Word of God and the truth of Him and the confidence and power that He brings must begin with us saying, we don't deserve any of that. And to recognize that we are culpable for the state of the world today. Our, Our sin contributes. Yours does. Mine does that we are sinners, we are not holy, we are not righteous. But we know from thousands of years of prophecy and revelation about who God is, that he is compassionate and forgiving and merciful, and that he is calling us to repent of those things, to clear out what is in the way so that we can better receive his spirit and what he calls and longs for us to experience in him. God's revealed himself so we can know these things, and so revival in your own life, in your own heart, in your church, in your community, in your nation, in your world, begins with repentance. That's how we prepare for the coming of the Lord. Now, John, it says in verse 6, was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Camel hair is for the poor. It's like, it's itchy right? I, I think you can actually get processed camel hair now that's really soft and kind of expensive. Not then, right? This was for the poor. And so what we see in this strange diet out in the wilderness with scratchy clothes on, that John is identifying with the depravity of the world, we are in a broken state. And he's doing this out in the wilderness, which throughout the Old Testament, the old the wilderness is a symbol of the chaos that is in Israel when they are away from uh, and out from under the kingship and rule of the Lord. And what he calls them to is baptism. And this would have been new for the Jews because the Jewish people... If For the Gentile people, Gentiles who became Jews, so people who were not Jews, converting to Judaism, would, uh, would undergo a cleansing or a washing that was a baptism-like thing. But, but Jewish people weren't baptized. They understood that the nations, the dirty people, the people outside should repent and be washed. But they are God's people, and he is calling Israel now to be baptized for the repentance of their sins. In other gospel accounts, he prophesies against the comfort of the religious people. He speaks to the church itself, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is Matthew chapter 3. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's saying to the religious people of the day who are overconfident in their standing because they deem themselves God's people, he says, it's not okay to just be a Jewish person in name only bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I say that his prophetic message is equally true for the church today. It is not okay for us to simply bear the name of Christian or to go through the motions of being a Christian. We must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Our lives should be different because we belong to Christ. We bear not only the name of church, we must be the church. And that means being different from the world. John's call was a call of conviction and an wake-up call to the church that we should hear today as well, each and every one of us. And it's a message of hope because 300,000 people have come to say, I'm ready. I'm ready to receive the Lord. I need this washing. I need to be cleansed. And the only one who can do it is the holy God himself. And so here's here's what he preached. Here's what John preached. Verse 7. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here, this prophetic forward-looking, right, that God is coming, playing into this idea of expectation and longing of the people. And so John really is, he's the first megachurch pastor. 300,000 people have been baptized under his ministry, but here's his message. It's not, look at all the great things that that we have done, that I have done. He says, no, 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 no. This, this is good and this is right, but this isn't about me. This is, there's someone greater than I who's come. I don't even, I don't get, even deserve to do the job of the lowliest servant, to bend down in the dirt and take off his shoe, untie his shoe after he's been walking around on dirty roads covered with, with donkey manure uh, and all his dirty feet. I can't, I'm not even worthy to step down, stoop down and take off his sandal. Someone much greater than I is coming. I baptize you with water. He's going to come to change your heart. The spirit of God himself is going to dwell within you and upon you. And this, this again, is reference to Old Testament prophecy in Joel chapter 2, Jeremiah 31, where, where God promises to pour out his spirit on all people. So you see what Mark is doing in the telling here, right? There's this building up of the tempo, this crescendo, prophets, expectation, John. And then John going, there's someone greater coming, someone who is is going to do much more than anything that I've ever done. And then in verse 9, in those days, Jesus came. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Why was Jesus baptized? Don't Christians believe that Jesus had no sin? Why would he be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? I'm glad you asked. It's a very good question, really. But we get some more details of the answer of this in Matthew's account of the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus comes to John in Matthew, John says this to him. Mark, Mark is an abbreviated gospel. He, he is very to the point. When you read the gospel of Mark, you will see over and over and over again this word, immediately. He, he, there's no dilly-dallying around for Mark, right? He's like, Jesus went over here, and then immediately he went over here, and then immediately he went over there. Mark is, some people would say, it's a passion narrative. That means the story of the crucifixion with a slight introduction. Because he kind of gets through all the miracles and stuff to the crucifixion. And so Mark doesn't give us all of these details. Matthew does, though. And Matthew says, John would have prevented him. So in other words, Jesus came and said, baptize me. And John went, oh, no, 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 no. It is I who need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? I resonate with this. Father Jared and I are about to baptize two wonderful folks here. If Jesus happens to walk in and goes, "Baptize me." I promise you, both of us are going to respond and go, "Oh no, no, no." <laughs> no, no, no. We are not uh-uh, right? This is this is not our place. And so, what is happening here that that Jesus is coming to be baptized. Jesus answered him this, he says, "Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." And then John consented. So the reason that Jesus was baptized is to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, part of that is the righteous plan of God. This To fulfill that, that all of this, this prophecy that we've seen, all of this foretelling that Jesus is going to come or that God is going to come, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The River Jordan was a, was a very important river as well because it marked the boundaries of the promised land. So after Israel left Egypt, when they were slaves in Egypt, they wandered around for 40 years. Different sermon series you can read about it in the book of Exodus. Then, then they entered into the land that God had promised them by crossing the River Jordan. And so here they are now back. As God's people back at that river, asking to start again, and at their helm this time, at the head of them, uh, last time it was Moses that led them to the river, and Joshua who would take them into the land. Joshua is the Greek form of, sorry, is the Hebrew form of Jesus. Jesus' name is Joshua. None of this is missed by the Israelite people, where they are symbolically, why this water is important. And Jesus is saying and showing that he is leading them into the promised land. He is fulfilling all righteousness. And then he, see this too, he didn't just appear in Jerusalem, the well-known city of God. He came out into the wilderness where we are. Jesus entered into our situation. He came, God came to be one of us, to step into the dysfunction of our world, to to identify with the people who are sinning, to be the representative of us and all of Israel. He came to us. Here's an epiphany, a revealing about the, the grand story of God and the character of God within it. Who is he? You see the God who is full of forgiveness and who is full of trustworthiness, and he's compassionate, and he's merciful, and he is actively pursuing us, coming into our chaos, into the wilderness where we are, even when we were in rebellion against God, we see this God of action and compassion and pursuit. Soon he will bear all of our sins on the cross. And now he is representatively being baptized in recognizing the need for all of us to repent. So there's this epiphany about the story of God and the and the character of God. There's another epiphany here in this baptism about the nature of who Jesus is, verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn. There it is again. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So this, this idea of the, the heavens being torn open, the language here is sort of a violent wrenching. This is no subtle event that is taking place here in Jesus's baptism. And so we hear then God speak this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This has echoes back to Genesis chapter 22 when God says to Abraham, I want you to take your chosen son, Isaac, and he specifically uses the phrase, your only son whom you love, and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, God intervenes and Isaac's not sacrificed but he's using this same well-known language and now he's saying this is my son whom I love but Jesus will not be rescued until his resurrection this also echoes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic coronation psalm. In other words, the, making the Messiah the king. And it's a song all about the, the making him king, putting the crown on his head, etc. And one of the things that God says during that psalm is, The Lord said to me, you are my son. This is... It's bringing all of the Old Testament to bear here on Jesus. And then Mark picks this up. Mark 1, verse 1. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so what we see here is this is no mere prophet that is being baptized here. This is no, this is no mere great teacher. This is no man of just strong morality. What we see present here, the sky opens, we hear the voice of God the Father, we see the Spirit descend like a dove, and we see the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, present at his baptism. This is the only place in the scripture where we see all three persons of the Trinity revealed at the same time. Our Christian understanding of the God, three in one, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we see here all together in the baptism of Jesus. So you see here, you have God identifying with his people and stepping into the messiness of their life in the glory, the glorious kindness and beauty and majesty that he has to fulfill their longing and to come with power to rectify. So his baptism reveals who he is, and it also, there's an epiphany about what he's here to do because there's an anointing for ministry in his baptism. The the construction of the language of, of how Mark is telling this story and what God says to his son, Jesus, as well echoes Isaiah chapter 42, where it says, behold my servant whom I uphold. Behold my son whom I love. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. We can see how these two events come together so clearly. And here's the prophecy about All of this imagery, this wilderness, and this impoverished prophet with the with the locusts and honey and the camel hair, and this idea of bruised reeds and and uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, smoldering wicks that he's not going to snuff out. What we see is that God again is not moving through the things that this world sees as powerful. He's not finding his solutions in political position or in wealth or in armies or in fame, but with redemption and forgiveness and justice. This is how God is choosing to reveal himself to us. The unknowable God is saying, I want you to know me. And how do I want you to know me? With redemption and forgiveness and justice and compassion. And if you're a bruised reed, don't worry. I'm not going to break you. And if you're a smoldering wick, I'm not going to snuff you out. I'm here to lift you up, to give you hope, to give you wholeness, to give you healing. And for all who are oppressed, who all see the injustice of this world, take heart, for I also come to bring justice, to right what is wrong. Here in the baptism of Jesus, we see the Son of God who meets us in our wilderness, gentle and mighty, simple and beautiful, upsetting the power structures of the world to return the world to the one who is worthy to rule. God himself. This is the great epiphany at the baptism of our Lord, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of history, of what was, what is, and what is to come, that Jesus is God himself who has become one of us to reconcile us to God through his death and resurrection, and that Jesus enters first into the wilderness of our sin. Holy God in the form of a servant enters into our story. And he's about to turn everything upside down. For those in this room who claim to be Christians, let us have this same longing for his return. Let us have this same fervor to make ready ourselves and our community and our church for the coming of the Lord. To recognize that in our baptism that we are anointed for ministry as well. We see baptism, not in the same way that John did, just as forgiveness of sins in the way that he did, but after Jesus' death and resurrection, that baptism is fully realized into a baptism into his death and resurrection and to be brought into his people. And part of being brought into his people is to be anointed for the work of ministry to prepare the way of the Lord. And so, friends, here's the challenge for us today. May the Lord grant an epiphany to us, an epiphany of his closeness, of his his reality, and an epiphany of what our response needs to be then. Therefore, if he is this close, if he is this holy, if he is this good, and I'm a sinner in the way that I'm a sinner, what is my response but repentance and belief? And then to know that hope and that joy of that glorious, forgiving, magical, wonderful, beautiful, powerful Lord, that we have, and to live into that, to live into that life of knowing him. May that epiphany take place in our lives. Whether you've been a Christian for most of your life, and there's an epiphany of that he is calling you even deeper, or maybe today you have not been a Christian, and that you are, that you are questioning and asking if The claims of the Lord are real. I pray that he will reveal himself to you so that you will know his goodness and his closeness and the great joyous hope that we have at his return. He's already come back once. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. He's already proven himself to be credible and faithful. And he's promised to return again. How much can we trust that promise if he's already fulfilled it? So make ready in your hearts. Repent, believe, be anointed for the work of ministry, and be intrigued by this person of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, we we need you to reveal yourself to us. We cannot grasp you by our own intellect. And we are too distracted by the things of this world to even pursue you oftentimes. Pursue us, Lord. Step into the wilderness of our lives. Let us hear the words of your scripture and the words of your prophets and make ready our hearts to receive you. And we pray that you would enter in. And we pray that you would turn everything upside down. But be careful, Lord, we pray. For we are bruised reeds, we are smoldering wicks, and we need both your compassion and your powerful justice. Let us find rest in both. And let us have an epiphany of the depth of your greatness and your glory, and of all that you want to do in us and through us, through your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.